This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, Women of the Way, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on July 16, 2009. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Um, I am at present writing a review of a new book that will be out in a couple of months, I think, that's called uh, Zen Women by Grace Shireson. I think it's going to look like this, and I really commend it to your attention. So I wanted to to say a few words about uh, what I'm finding in, in writing this review of the book. She does a great job of surveying pretty quickly, because it's not that thick a book, the history of women in uh, Chan, which is the Chinese pronunciation of Zen, and Son, which is the Korean pronunciation of Zen, and Zen, which is the Japanese pronunciation of Zen. Um, She does a pretty good job of, of giving a sense of the different kinds of lives that women lived within Zen, Son, Chan um, over the centuries. And uh, one of the things I really like about it is that she speaks not only chronologically, and then this happened and this happened and this developed like this, but she also ties things together in themes. And so she'll talk about how different women across centuries and in different countries dealt with the problems of being denied entry, for example, into the um, the institutions of Buddhism, or how they juggled the, you know, the our our favorite question, the householder monastic um, duality, um, or what kind of relationship women had with um, sexuality within and without the the monasteries, and. She keeps bringing things back to contemporary concerns, how these questions are questions that in many cases are still alive and unresolved for us. Uh, so I think that's, that's really helpful too. And um, so for, for those who have felt a yawning gap in, in that we really don't know much of this uh, history, this is, this is a great start in filling that gap in. A lot of it, it has been available, but in pretty esoteric scholarly journals, and so not so accessible for us, and this is a great book for anybody to pick up and, and read. So I wanted to begin just by briefly touching on a couple of reasons why I think this is important for everybody. <laughs> uh, and the first is that when, when we don't have this material, which 98% we haven't had this material, we lose something. We don't have a full and complete picture of Chan, Son, Zen. We um, have had it edited for us. Somebody has decided recently or a thousand years ago what is wholesome and good for us to know about our own tradition. And I don't know about all of you, but I resent being told what, I, <laughs> what is wholesome and good for me to know. I'd rather figure that out for myself. And I trust that for most of you, you'd rather figure it out for yourselves as well. So we're not getting the full picture, and we're losing, we've lost a great deal in terms of imagery and metaphor and stories. And um, in, the, in the second part of my talk, I'm going to delve into some of that to give you a kind of flavor for, for what I'm talking about. But um, why not have more ways of talking about practice, about the experience of awakening, about the struggle to come to the experience of awakening, about how we live lives in the world, 
um, with and without awakening, why not have more images, more metaphors, different stories? How could that be a bad thing? Um, the second reason I think it's important is that our idea of what Zen is can get incredibly narrow. I mean, mostly I, I would wager that in, um, in the Americas, what we think of as, as Zen is actually what young Japanese men of the late 19th century did in urban temples. And that's not Zen. That's what young Japanese men of the 19th century did in urban temples, which is a good and wonderful thing. But to say that that Zen leaves out a whole lot. And so one of the things we do in this way is try to bust open those um, unconscious, often, um, constrictions on what we think of as Zen. And we've certainly done that by making it a practice of the here and now and of our lives and of the metaphors and the images and the songs and the poetry of this place, of this landscape um, and this ecology. And also we've uh, gone back to the Chinese origins of, of um, the koan tradition. This is a koan way. And um, try to revive that spirit and to see how that expands our sense of what Zen is. And just a, a, a quick sort of graphic example of that is um, I remember still the moment I learned that um, you know, in in, uh, in, ja- what we th- in Japanese practice, which we think is Zen practice, somebody every once in a while goes around a ho- the hall during a retreat and whacks people with sticks to wake them up. And we think that's Zen. But I, I still remember the moment I learned that in the Chinese temples, they went around and served green tea to everybody to wake them up. So that's, pre- you know, in that instant, my idea of what Zen is changed, you know. That... that um, Whacking people with sticks is not Zen. It's Japanese. And serving people green tea is not Zen. It's Chinese. But the thing that seems to be constant is the desire for people to be awake in the meditation hall. So how do we do that? What's our expression of that? And what we do with that is serve tea at the beginning of every block of meditation. And then the head of practice goes around a few times and gives everybody a vigorous neck and shoulder massage. Okay, so that's our... That's our expression of what seems like the truth about the true thing, which is not whacking or tea, but is um, being awake in the hall. So anything that breaks us out of those narrow boxes in our ideas about what it is seems to me very important, given that Buddha nature pervades the universe, you know, and Zen is everywhere. And then two specific things that have to do with our own time and circumstances are um, we live in a world where a great deal of the problems among human beings are caused by the ideas we have about each other. You know, the generally um, incomplete, incorrect, um, not so helpful ideas that we as individuals have about other individuals and we as groups have about about other groups. And Buddhism in general, and I think Zen in particular, has this incredible jewel, which is a long-developed, sophisticated, refined practice of inquiry and deconstruction, which is aimed at showing you the emptiness of ideas. 
And we turn that on ourselves. We're endlessly turning those practices of, of, in, of uh, inquiry and deconstruction on our senses of ourselves. And for those who've been doing it for a while, you can, it really works. You begin to see the emptiness of most of your ideas and most of the things that have seemed most solid and real about yourself. We could use those same methods and practices and turn them on uh, ideas about about race, about gender, about sexual and affectional preferences, about religions. I mean, name political beliefs, name your, your topic, and we could deconstruct them as well using these tools of Buddhism and see the emptiness of most of our ideas about other people and other groups. And we haven't done that. Buddhism hasn't yet made that offering, which I think is a really, could a potentially really important one um, to the world. And one of the things that we can do is we can deconstruct our ideas about gender as much as we can our ideas about self. Um, And the last reason I think this material is important for everybody is that most of us in the Americas are not monastics. Most of us are householders doing some kind of practice. And in um, Asian countries for the last almost couple thousand years, women were often denied the opportunity to practice as monastics, denied uh, admission into the institutions. So they had to figure out other ways of practice. They had to figure out ways of practice within the households, within um, the domestic situations that they lived in. That could be incredibly valuable information for us. They worked on this for hundreds and hundreds of years under much more difficult circumstances than we find ourselves in. Wouldn't it be great to have access to what they figured out? Wouldn't it be great to know what the, what conclusions they came to, what practices um, and ways of being people of Zen worked for them? Um, and I, I always think in, in regard to this in particular of a, a, a group of Chinese women in the, I think about 17th, 18th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries in China, who were called Daoren, which is uh, people of the Tao, people of the way. And they were somewhere in between monastics and lay people. They didn't go into um, convents or monasteries, but they often did live in communal living situations together. And they didn't live householders' lives, but they were living in the world. So they were this kind of interesting hybrid that I think um, appeals to us perhaps today. In the words of the the Sufi poet Rabia, they were um, eating the bread of this world while doing the work of that world. And I think a lot of us relate to that. We feel some connection with that kind of way of living, that we don't want to live what we might think of as an, you know, an, an unthinking consumerist householder's life, and yet we don't also want to go into the monastery at this point in our life. So we're looking for a way to be committed to the way while living in the world. And here were these women who figured this out hundreds of years ago and how great it would be to know what they did. Okay, so that's my, um, that's my speech for why, <laughs> why this should matter. And um, now I want to uh, turn to um, just one ex- one of many examples in the book and give the kind of Dharma talk that I can only give because we have this material. I couldn't have given this talk last month. 
Um, it's about a 17th century Chinese woman named uh, Xingang who, against great odds and uh, great obstacles, ended up practicing uh, and becoming a, a renowned teacher in the Linji or Rinzai lineage, so in the Koan lineage that is our own ancestry. And I wanted to, to just read a bunch of her words because it's so glorious to have the words themselves and then make some comments on some of the things she said. Um, this is this is a kind of journal she kept when she was she was doing her training. And um, at that time in China, it was very co- common for people to do long, years-long secluded trainings. They'd go off somewhere. Uh, and that tradition survives more in Tibetan Buddhism than anywhere else where one-year or three-year or nine-year retreats are not that uncommon. So she went off to do a, a year-long retreat. And one of the things that's interesting to me is she doesn't say why she did this, but I'm interested that she went and built herself a, a meditation hut at, in the cemetery where her parents were buried so that she could take care of their grave, she could tend their grave. And there's something about that that feels like an immediate statement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this most intense practice of going off on my own, but I'm going to take care of my parents' grave while I do it. You know, trying to bridge that gap between um, ordinary householder's life and, um, and religious life. So she, she says of this time, I lived in deep seclusion with few comforts, but determined to persevere. My body seated upright with grave dignity. I made no distinctions between inner and outer. And those of you who have um, braved your way through the Xinjiang Ming, the trust in mind that we were looking at earlier this year, immediately, earlier this summer, immediately see that, um, that emphasis on the breaking down of dualities, no distinctions between inner and outer. I pushed against emptiness. Isn't that a great phrase? I'm not, I'm, I haven't quite settled what she meant by that, but I'm really interested in it. I pushed against emptiness, cutting off all entanglements. Once the distinction between inner and outer was gone, in other words, once the dualities had dropped away and I was no longer spending all my time sorting and judging and classifying everything, then all entanglements were dissolved. So it was the dropping away of dualities that allowed the sense of being entangled in things to also drop away. Not having relationships with things, but feeling entangled in things. When there is neither shape nor form, one sees oneself face to face and can gather up a great kalpa. A kalpa is a vast um, length of time in a single point, so a whole kalpa in a single point, and spread a speck of dust over the ten directions. So the ways that we usually think of things, um, big, small, long, short, all of that, completely disappears. Then you experience no restrictions, no restraints, and you're free to go where you please. Now this is a woman who's living in a hut for a year, but feeling completely free to go wherever she pleases, you know, in the sense of her own, in her own heart-mind, completely free. So, sometime after this, um, she was made a, a, a Dharma heir of her teacher and became a, a teacher in, this, in the Linji or Rinzai lineage. And, and at that time, you were given a staff to symbolize your teaching authority, which was called the Wish Fulfiller. The staff was the Wish Fulfiller. So this is a poem she wrote about, about receiving Dharma transmission. 
Fingers fold around the wish fulfiller. The lineage continues. I love that, you know, she, she claims it, you know. I put my hand around the wish fulfiller and the lineage continues with me. What a great encouragement that is for all of us because the lineage also continues with all of us as both past and present disappear in a dazzling emptiness. When you understand the nature of the true wish fulfiller, then the unchanging absolute will rest in the palm of your hand. So here's a great question to take away with you tonight. What is the nature of the true wish fulfiller? What is the true wish fulfiller for you, for all of us? And how, if we know that, does the absolute come to rest in the palm of our own hand, just as the staff rested in the palm of her hand? Um, so she, she um, messed about with koans, much like we do. And uh, here's, a, here's a poem she wrote to help one of, her, um, one of the nuns she was working with koans with to, through her koan practice. I'm going to start writing you all poems. You'll be sorry. (laughs) Understand the ordinary mind and realize the one who is naturally complete. Okay, so understand the ordinary mind. What have we been talking about in the Koan Salon? Ordinary mind is the way. Understand the ordinary mind and realize the one who is naturally complete. Who is naturally complete? Who is that? Ask urgently who you were before your father and mother were born, which of course is the original face koan. Quickly, quickly, without thinking good and evil, before your parents were born, what is your original face? When you see through the method that underlies them all, another question, what is the method that underlies them all? The mountain blossoms and flowing streams will rejoice with you. The whole being poets. The, the femoral being the koans. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, no, I think uh, the koans, yes, okay, yes, the koans, and all of our, our, our ideas about what we think we're doing, all the, all the practices and methods. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then just a, a few more examples of her words and a sense of a, I, I feel, a kind of different flavor than we're used to, especially from the Linji School. Um, Linji School was known for its kind of abruptness and shouts and hits and um, all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's a beautiful bracing quality to that. And she shows this kind of other side using exactly the same material, having Dharma transmission in that line. She says, there's no greater suffering than to be caught up in the bustle of worldly affairs. There's no greater joy than cultivating the way with one-pointed mind. Now that's not often said. There's no greater joy than cultivating the way with one-pointed mind. The way is no other than the greatest joy in the world. Abandoning the way to seek out pleasure is like throwing away food and seeking hunger. Um, there's a there's a couple of um, expressions of of sorrow. This was from one of her Dharma heirs when she died. And um, listen to the to the tenderness of these poems she wrote when when Shingang died. And 
there's no fear of emotion here. There's no fear of the human heart. There's no fear of having feelings. And that seems like a tremendously important piece that we're picking back up. So these are two verses called Mourning the Nun Who Was My Master. One, the moon sinks west as autumn comes to a close. The fly whisk, untouched, lies at the head of her seat. Outside the window, the branches of a single tree weep. A wind rises and rain drips mournfully in the meditation hall. So there's no drama, there's no indulgence in emotion, but there's no turning away from it either. There's no thinking, you know, the right thing to do is to be stoic and talk about emptiness at such a time. The second poem, for the past 20 years she's been our teacher, truly unique and alone, her staff flashing up and down. When did the smoke from her quarters dwindle away, leaving her children and grandchildren as they were before? And by children and grandchildren, she means her students. There's something so poignant to me about that. When did the smoke from her quarters dwindle away? You know that there must have, they must have seen that on the on the grounds from her from her home. Um, and then again, the same the same Dharma era Yigong wrote a, another poem when her dear sister in the way died a couple of years later. And this is what she wrote about her Dharma sister, uh, Yichuan. Alas, there was no one like you, my Dharma sister, the monk from Banruo. Isn't that great? You, my Dharma sister, the monk from Banruo. Your heart was like that of a naked child, your actions like those of the ancients. You were clever while appearing awkward, wise while appearing stupid, eloquent while appearing inarticulate, iron strong while appearing soft. You treated others as you would treat yourself and fully exhausted the possibilities of both humans and heaven. You and I shared the same way of life, but you have abandoned me and entered the realm of the deathless. Um, Then here's one of of many anecdotes when Shingang was still alive and teaching. She went back to her old training monastery where she'd been the first woman to train in this monastery that had been entirely men up to that point. And when she got there, she saw that the monks were suffering badly from the cold that winter. So she went back to her convent, and she and and all her nuns um, spent several months sewing leggings for the monks back at the the monastery, and they, they delivered them to them. So no sense of, you know, it's good for you to have your lose your toes to frostbite. Um, she just got everybody together and they started sewing and they made leggings and probably saved a toe or two. So again, a kind of, um, a kind of different flavor. And then, because um, I'm running out of time, I will, I'll close with, with one last thing that also really touched me. She was, um, at one point, she was speaking about her own relationship to her lineage, to the Linji tradition with its sticks and shouts and blows and kicks and all that. And she said, in the gates and halls of the elders, the work of the lineage flourishes. Knowing my own lazy ignorance, I've hidden away in order to be still. Esoteric methods, blows and shouts, I'm giving them all a rest. (laughs) 
So again, you know, her absolute confidence in the gates and halls of the elders, in the gates and halls of this place where people have practiced for a long, long time. The work of the lineage flourishes, even though I'm giving esoteric methods, blows and shouts a rest for a while. So anyway, that's the kind of stuff that's available in here. Thank you all. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.